Fantastic. We're in the book of Daniel, and we're looking at a tale of two kingdoms. We are looking at the idea that all through Daniel, there is this battle between the spirit of Babylon and the spirit of God. The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. We see it in the garden in Genesis. We talk about it, Revelation chapter 18, which we haven't got, got to yet, but we're going to get close today, uh, where we will see this spirit cast down forever and ever. And um, today is an interesting moment. This is, I've sat with this for a long time, done a lot of research, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, it's up to God where this goes, hey? <laughs> uh, I have a feeling it might look very different to the first service, but praise God for that. He's going to speak as he needs to speak. So if you'd stand to your feet with me, let's just invite God to do what he wants to do. Loving Heavenly Father, we surrender this preaching moment to you now in Jesus' name. Uh, We need to hear from you. No one needs to hear from Dave. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak boldly to us, God, that you'd give us receptive ears today. You'd give us open hearts, eyes that can see. Lord, may we be drawn into your word uh, and may we um, be enamored with Jesus. When this is said and done, may we be captivated by our true King of heaven and may our lives be empowered by your spirit to follow him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So, um, like just before COVID hit, I had the chance to head up to the Riverland um, to preach to a bunch of their young people up there and also run some leadership stuff with their leaders, their youth leaders up in the Riverland. We had a great time for, I think it was a few weekends. And hello to all our Riverland people. We've actually got a big group of crew who are gathering in the Riverland, who are gathering every Sunday and calling Hills home. So, hello to you. Comment. Uh, let us know you're there, great, all that stuff. And uh, anyway, so on one of the days where we had a bit of a break, we had a chance to go to a playground, and the playground had a big maze, like this really massive maze. And I don't know if any of you are maze people. Uh, I am not. I'm not someone who likes to be confined in a small space. Anyone else? Some of you are like, yeah, I love that, Mama. you're a weirdo. <laughs> I hate that claustrophobic feeling. I hate being in a maze and I hate running around and then being like, oh, I'm trapped, I'm trapped, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm going. I'm freaking out, but I'm also a dad, so I can't let my kids know that when they're running around having a great time and I'm secretly going, Fortunately, in the middle of the maze was a lookout. So if you could get to the lookout right in the middle of it all, you could climb up the stairs, you could stand up and you could look down upon the whole maze and you could just tell people where to go. Bailey got to the lookout. So I'm there running around pretending I'm all cool when I'm far from it. And he's just there, he's up in the lookout, he's going like, hey, Bay, where should I go next? (laughs) He's just calling out, directing me and eventually you get to the lookout. When you get to the lookout, you can either go straight out the maze or you can duck back in the maze and try again. My kids went back in, I went straight out. But it's really interesting, when I was thinking about this this passage and what the next six chapters of Daniel are like, it's kind of like that, because we are in the maze of human history, aren't we? We we exist in the ever-present now, meaning we can look back and we can learn lessons from our past, but we can't really look forward. I don't know what the next five minutes is going to hold. You don't know what the next five minutes is going to hold. No one does, all right, because we live in this ever-present Now, this moment in time, this maze where there's that wall, there's that wall, there's that wall, we can't see out or beyond it. But God is in a different position. God is actually in the lookout of time. He exits time. He's above time, outside of time. He created time. He sits enthroned above it all, and he can actually look down on the maze that is human history, and he can speak a word that brings those of us who are in the maze peace, clarity, hope, comfort. In the same way that Bailey spoke a word to me that brought me comfort, when we come to the word of God, we come to the next six chapters of Daniel, we're going to hear the word from the master who sits in the lookout of time. And sometimes when we look at time and we talk about being outside of time, it freaks people out. We got into this at interns on Thursday. Some of them are like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And some of them are like, oh, my my mind's going to blow up. So we won't go too deep into that, but God is above and outside of time. So with that said, that's what Daniel 7 to Daniel 12 are all about. So let's turn there right now. Let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 
Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Pause. You will notice, where were we last week? It was Darius was the king and we were in Persia being thrown into a lion's den. Now we're back with Belshazzar who was there in chapter five. So this is actually before chapter five happened. Something's changed. Up until now, Daniel's kind of just followed this beautiful, historical, third-person, literary style, which is great, and it's kind of easy to follow. There's heaps of wisdom and depth and insight in it, but it's a fairly easy read, which is why most preachers stop at six. Because when you get to seven, something shifts. All of a sudden, it's not following that same pattern. Everything's changing. I had in my mind the whole week, this gives you an insight into my brain. I'm sitting here going, it's beginning to look a lot like Revelation. There's beasts on every page. Stuff's changing. And this is super important for us to understand as we approach the next six chapters of Daniel. So I'm kind of doing a reintroduction. The next six chapters are very different to the first six chapters. And chapter seven is significant It is crucial. Lots of scholars will talk about this being one of the most important chapters in the entirety of the Old Testament for a couple of reasons. I'm going to get a little academic for a while. Is that all right? A couple of reasons. Well, three reasons. Firstly, the structure of it. Chapter one is written in Hebrew. Chapter two to seven is written in Aramaic. Chapter eight to 12 is written in Hebrew. Why? Because it... Daniel's doing something with chapter two to seven. Chapter two to seven, Daniel is actually delivering a message to those who would hear this in Aramaic, which is the pagan world. And so there is a message hidden, not even hidden, it's quite obvious, in the pages of Daniel two through seven, that's specifically for the pagan world, declaring a message. And that message can actually be found in the structure of the text, all right? So when you read through two and seven, you're gonna see something which I'm gonna show you in a minute, which scholars call a chiasm. Everyone say chiasm. And basically what a chiasm is, is a pyramid which goes like this, which starts with an argument. It leads up to a climactic moment or climactic message and then we'll come back down the other side. So here's what we see. Chapter two, there is a prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar has his dream and the dream is of four kingdoms. So there's a prophecy of four kingdoms. Remember the head of gold, The chest and arms of silver, you know, the bronze, and then the iron mixed with clay on the feet. There's a prophecy of four kingdoms. Chapter three, there is the trial of God's faithful people, which is the boys getting thrown into the fiery furnace. So we see this trial of God's faithful people. Chapter four, there is a prophecy to a pagan king. So we see that Daniel comes and he prophesies the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, basically saying, mate, you're gonna become a beast of the field, right? You're gonna like be super weird for a while and then God's gonna humble you and you're gonna give your life to God. Now the climax is in chapter four, verse 37. Let me read it to you. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, now remember he was the king of kings. He is the pinnacle of all pagan kings. I, Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? He prays, exalts and honors the king of heaven for all his works are true. Everyone say true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's the message. That's the climactic moment that Daniel wants everyone to hear, that ultimately we're all subservient and reliant upon the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, which is God. And so he does this, and then look at the other side of the chiasm. It then is chapter five is a prophecy to a pagan king. Remember that, Belshazzar, the whole hand on the wall thing, the poo in the pants situation. Right, we had that whole schmozzle going on, but there was a prophecy to this pagan king. Chapter six is what? A trial of God's faithful people. Daniel in a lion's den. Chapter seven, we're gonna see the prophecy of four kingdoms. Seven bookends the first part of Daniel and it then leads us into the second part of Daniel, which is the second part of the academic thing I gotta talk to you about, which is style and symbolism. We had this historical third-person writing. Now we see symbols of beasts and seas and winds and all sorts of stuff. What's going on? There's a change in literacy or literary literary style. 
all right? We're moving from historical to apocalyptic. Yeah, I love it. Everyone's like, ooh, that sounds cool. Apocalyptic is kind of the, the same style that you're going to see in Revelation. It's what we're going to see for the next six chapters of Daniel, and it reads different. But don't freak out. What often happens with people when we start reading apocalyptic stuff, we're like, well, it's too much for me. Either that, and so we ignore it, or we dive so far into it that we start going, oh, that could actually be, you know, that could be this, and maybe Mark Zuckerberg is that, and maybe, maybe, oh, what if, what if the winged lion is actually, uh, you know, Amazon, or so, you know, we, we do all this stuff where we, we read into things that aren't there to be read into because we don't understand how to read apocalyptic literature. Is that all right? So how do we read apocalyptic literature? Let me just give you a couple of things. First and foremost, apocalyptic is often prophetic, all right? Now, when we read the Bible, there's going to be some things that I would say are closed-handed issues, all right? Closed-handed, which means are not up for debate, Right, these are things that the early church put in stone with, with the creeds. You know, these are things like the Trinity. These are things like that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on a cross and rose again. There's certain things that are closed-handed that are not up for debate. There's other things that are open-handed, which means you and I can talk about it and disagree and still be friends, Right? We can still get along, we can still abide in the same church, we can still love one another, we can still sing the same songs and believe the same stuff about the important stuff. What often happens in the church is we read the open-handed stuff and we make it closed-handed and then it divides the church. That's the opposite of why God gives us these prophetic words. May we never be a church that does that. Talk about it, enjoy the debate, work with each other, but all of it should point you to the tip of the chiasm, which is what? Praise be to the God and Father, you know, praise be to Jesus. It's what Paul comes back to in all this. And it's like, he's God, he's king, he's glorious, he's above us. That's the purpose of the prophetic word. And of a popular, how do I say that? Apocalyptic literature. So let's not get lost in it, but let's explore it because it is important. There's a reason God's given it to us. And that's my goal. Today, the next six chapters, that's our goal is to actually explore what it is that God is wanting to reveal to us about the future and about the current state and what, how does Daniel react? And in seeing how Daniel reacts, what do I need to learn from Daniel and the way that he reacts? So that's our goal. So style and symbolism. Now, I want to read something, uh, a commentator, a guy called L. Wood, who's, a, I think he's a very good commentator. I like what he says. He says some interesting stuff about biblical apocalyptic literature. He says, this should be understood as an actual account of what the writer saw and heard rather than contrived literature employed by a writer merely as a communicative tool. What does that mean, Dave? There's a lot of words that went straight over my head and I don't understand them. Here's what it means. Some people, when they read Revelation or Daniel, last six chapters, say that someone has made up a language because of persecution, they made up a way of talking to each other so that their adversary wouldn't know what they're talking about. And they'll say, so this is all just code that has to be deciphered. What this guy's saying is, uh-uh. We, when we read apocalyptic literature, we need to recognize that this is how God spoke to them and they just wrote it down. God spoke, they wrote it down. It has symbols, but many of those symbols are actually already revealed in the text itself, in the interpretation, or somewhere else in Scripture, or in the pages of history, which we'll see in a minute. All right? So here's another thing he says that I really like. He says, we should accept the plain sense of the text unless there is a good reason to adopt some other meaning. It will be noticed that in respect to the predicted events which have already occurred... If the vision finds a literal historic fulfillment, then the, then the same should be anticipated in respect to the events which lie in the future. Again, let me put it in layman's terms. If what Daniel prophesied came to pass literally, then we should expect that what he's prophesied in the future will also come to pass literally. We shouldn't go, this stuff all came to pass literally, but this stuff is just a spiritual thing. They can't be deciphered. You with me? 
If, it's li- like, if that was all spiritual, then this should be spiritual. But if this is a literal fulfillment, then we are expecting a literal fulfillment. And that is how we should read this text. Okay? That's the framework for Daniel 7 through 12. That's the framework for apocalyptic literature. Let's get stuck into it. Let's deal with the dream. So, verse 2. How are we doing? I told you it's going to be meaty. Like, this isn't just a small steak. This is, this is a thick steak. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. Pause. What the heck is with the great winds? What's the great sea? And what the heck is with this beast? All right, the great winds. Whenever you hear the four winds and you read that throughout scripture, four winds, four meaning north, south, east, west, what God is saying is this is a universal thing. This is a thing that is going to encompass the whole world. What we're about to hear is not isolated to one nation. This is about everybody, all right? And it's talking about the great wind that came from heaven. Therefore, we need to understand that God is in control of who is in control. God is not confused. He's not reactionary. He's not surprised. And he's not upset. He knows What's going to happen? He sits upon the watchtower. He understands what's going on and he is showing us how he's going to bring all things to an end. All right? It's the four winds of heaven. Then it says it's churning up the great sea. What is the great sea? Some say the Mediterranean. When you read scripture, the great sea over and over and over again is referring to humanity. It is referring to the population of the Gentiles, the world, the earth. This is what it's talking about. So when there is a churning of the great sea, it means that there is a turmoil within humanity. This is something that we see all over the world right now, constantly. We see one person rising up against another. We see people seeking wealth at the detriment of another. We see people lording their power at the detriment of another. We are seeing this constant turmoil in the sea that is humanity. This constant striving and battling between people. Yes? It's the churning of the great sea. And what this word is saying is that Daniel saw this churning out of the sea, out of the population, out of the people of the world, arose a great beast. And he says, that first great beast was a lion with wings. And its wings were plucked and it stood on two feet like a man and was given the mind of a man. Who is this or what is this? This is Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar. How do I know? Well, go to the pages of history. When you go to uh, the pages of history, what you will see is that the symbol for Babylon was a lion with wings. Everyone who heard this, like when you walk through the main gates into the city of Babylon, there was a lion, I said Babylon, Babylon, Put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, Jace. <laughs> there was a line with wings literally engraved into the pillars by which you walked into the city. So everyone knew this symbol, didn't they? All right? It's Babylon. Daniel knows it's Babylon. All the readers know it's Babylon. This doesn't, it's not a weird thing for them. But then it talks about the wings being plucked and being stood on two feet and having a mind of a man. What do we know happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was a beast of a leader. He was someone who devoured people like a lion. He was someone who was the anti of all that God was for, and yet something happened to him. He was humbled. And in his humbling, what happened? He looked up. And he honored God. It said that his mind was restored to him. And then in the last years of his reign, he reigned as a humanitarian. He actually reigned as someone who didn't just destroy and uh, distort people. He didn't just blaze through people. No, he reigned with justice. And he actually reigned with integrity. He reigned as a man under God. And it's saying, this is what he was. I plucked his wings. I messed him up. And he became my servant. Verse five, and there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. 
It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, eat your fill of flesh. This beast, this beast is the Medo-Persian Empire. How do we know? Well, what animal was associated with the Medo-Persian Empire? A bear. (laughs) It says it was raised up on one side. Why? Because Persia was greater than the Medes. It says it had three ribs in its mouth. Why? Because it had three great military conquests in order to become the world power. It's revealed in the pages of history. And so we look at this and we go, that's Persia. That's who he's talking about. So after Babylon will come another great kingdom out of the people of the earth, and it will be Persia, all right, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then, verse 6, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Who came after Persia? The Greeks. What do we know about Alexander the Great? Fast. Think of a leopard with wings. Is that a slow critter? (laughs) The answer is no, that's going to be fast. I don't know if you've ever been chased by a leopard. I haven't, but I wouldn't want to be because I think they're pretty quick. And if it had wings, it's a whole other level. (laughs) It's talking about the speed at which this kingdom and this king is going just to destroy the earth. And I don't know if this is historically true, but there's sort of... Maybe it might be, it's a bit of a fable, but they say that at the age of 33, after having conquered the known world, that Alexander the Great put his head on his pillow and wept because there was no one else to conquer. He moved fast and he was powerful, but interestingly, because of the speed of his success, he left no heir. Guess what happened to his kingdom? Split up into four, given to four generals, four heads. So we see that and we're like, well, he's talking about Greece. Isn't it amazing? We look at this 2,600 years later from our own little lookout of time because we can go back and we go, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. This isn't just pretty cool, friends. This is, this is Daniel catching a, a vision of God saying, here's your next 300 years, mate. This is what's going to happen Speak it out, and it's not just going to be some sort of airy-fairy thing that could be interpreted left, right, and center like people read in the newspapers, those things about the stars, I don't even know what they're called. Like, oh, I might come across a human with a smile today. (laughs) No, this is so specific and so on point that scholars are like, don't believe it. Can't be true. Must have been written much later on after the whole empire was done. But there's so much evidence and research to suggest and show that it had to be written 600 BC. Like even recently, uh, scholars discovered what is called the Nabonidus Cylinder, which so archaeologists do their digging, right? And until recently, one of the critiques of Daniel was that there is no historical record of this guy Belshazzar, none. And like, because we, we have no record, Daniel must be lying. Guess what they recently discovered on the Nabonidus Cylinder? A record of Belshazzar, explaining the history that Nabonidus gave the kingdom to Belshazzar as a co-regent. It's like, the more we dig and the more we discover, the more the Bible is proved true. Do you know, I was talking to someone the other day in this field, and he said, the interesting thing with archaeology is that we have never found anything that actually disproves Scripture. Everything we find, the more we dig, the more it points to the accuracy and legitimacy of this text. Come on, somebody. There's Daniel. There's verse 6. So he says, it's Greece, all right? This is what's going to happen. Verse 7, after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. He can't even describe it properly. He just says terrifying and frightening and very powerful. There's no animal that likens itself to this. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had ten horns. And this is where it gets interesting. Because the logical thing to say is that this is Rome, When we go back to chapter 2 and the vision of Rome, what did it have on its feet? Iron mixed with clay. How many toes did it have? Ten. How many horns does this iron beast have? Ten. There's a correlation. Something's going on here. 
And so we say, this, this is Rome. And we know that's Rome. Rome happened. This glorious, incredible, powerful kingdom that rose up and literally just destroyed everything in its wake and everything in its path. And some people will tell you, and this is where we start to get into the open-handed issues of Scripture. So you're allowed to disagree with me on some of this stuff, all right? But let's talk about it because I think I'm right. <laughs> uh, some people will say that what happened was that what this next number of verses is talking about is the church. And they're saying that what this number of verses is talking about is when Jesus came, he established his spiritual kingdom and the kingdoms of the earth were destroyed and that spiritual kingdom's gonna reign forever. I don't think that's what it's saying because there was a literal fulfillment of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But when we study Rome, we don't see in history 10 kingdoms coming together as one. We don't see that. So the seven horns, the 10 horns is an interesting thing because horns speaks of kingdoms and kings. We're gonna get to that in a minute. There's something about this that's actually saying, oh, this might not yet be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled, but maybe Rome's not done. Maybe there's more to the story. You see, history will tell us that Rome was sacked in 410 BC. History will tell us that the last great king of Rome was actually killed in 1453 AD. Sorry, I should have said AD before, 410 AD, after Christ. So Rome lasted a really, really long time. And our world says that actually, well, Rome is done, therefore, what are we to make of this prophecy? But I think what this prophecy is saying is I think it's linking in with Daniel 2, which was that this kingdom will be iron mixed with clay, which means it will be strong and brittle, which means I believe, again, open-handed, we can talk about it, but I believe what this is saying is that Rome is going to rise again. There's going to be a remnant of Rome. I don't know exactly what that looks like, or I don't know what nations that is, and I, to be honest, am quite happy not to do the delving, because I don't think that's what the point is. I don't think we're supposed to start going, oh, is it Trump? <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to be doing that stuff. I think th there's a different picture. What I think we are supposed to do is that know that this future is going to be fulfilled, that there is this kingdom that is brutal and persecuted the people of God and it is going to be rebuilt and it is going to rise up at a future time somewhere in the future, somewhere far beyond now and out of that there'll be 10 kings who come together or you know, 10 leaders who come together, they'll be to together in unity, they will rule the whole world and verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. I think out of this kingdom, somewhere in the future, we will see the rise of who Paul calls in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, whom John calls in 1 John, the Antichrist. whom Revelation 13 calls the beast. We're talking future and time. This prophecy for us, for Daniel, is all future. For us, is past and future. And we live in this present age in the church. That Jesus has come to initiate his kingdom. And he did it in the time of the first the first you know, rule of this fourth beast, when the Roman roads were out and the gospel could get all over the place and the church, this, this church is initiated, but the kingdom of God that we've been talking about exists in a spiritual sphere. It exists in the hearts and lives of the people who come and follow Jesus. We see the kingdom of God, yes, being manifest on the earth, but we don't see the city of Zion down on earth and the new heaven and the new earth. We don't see Jesus reigning in the physical, natural world. We don't see that all evil has been put to death, that every tear has been gone, that all the shame is gone, all the guilt is gone, everything's been made right. We don't see that yet in our day. Therefore, this must be a future reality that we long for and we look towards and we're desire, we're praying, Jesus, come back. Set it all right. And I think there's a time that exists, and this is getting open-handed too, but... 
There's this time that's coming which Jesus calls in Luke 21 the age of the Gentiles. Oh, I gotta, no, I'm not going to go there. But I think, there's a, I think there's a time that's coming where we... Uh, nah, there's a time coming where what we're going to see, where the, the rule of the Gentiles, they are, they are lording it over the, the earth and out of that reign and rule will come this nation and will come this Antichrist who we've heard so much about. It's coming. So let's do that again. Let's go verse 8. Here's what I want to do for the rest of this time. I want us to see, we've been talking about the tale of two kingdoms. And I want us to see this comparatively because that's what this chapter is about. It's not about four kingdoms, it's about two. It's saying that all these things that are coming are actually under the influence of one, the demonic. And we see this, this spirit at work, the counterfeit kingdom versus the kingdom of God. To start with, let's have a look at the counterfeit, okay? Verse 8, while I was thinking about the horn, there before me was the other horn, a little one which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Eyes of a human being. When you see eyes in apocalyptic literature, it's speaking of insight, it's speaking of intellect, and it's speaking of wisdom. What that means is this Antichrist character is not going to be some weird freak that no one wants to be around. You know, we have that idea of, oh, he's going to have like weird, freaky eyes and all sorts of weird stuff going on. You know, walk up with his eyes like, six, six, six. <laughs> I haven't slept much. I'm a bit loose this morning. <laughs> He's not going to be that. He's going to draw all men unto himself. <laughs> Seriously, this guy's going to be charismatic. He's going to be like super smart. He's going to be might in, uh, mighty in his military power. He's going to overthrow three other kings and subdue them. The whole world's going to flock to this guy. We're going to be, the world is going to be so drawn to him except for those who are true to the kingdom of God. Because those who are true to the kingdom of God will see and discern the lie for what it is. They will resist him and they will cop his full force of hatred towards the people of God. How do we know? Let's jump ahead. We're going to come back to verse 9 because it's important. Let's go to verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts, the four kings that will rise from the earth. We just talked about that. But the holy people, the most high, will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Whoa, we're coming back there. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others and most terrifying. Isn't it interesting that Daniel wants to know the meaning? He pauses on it. Don't ever be a Christian who reads this stuff and goes, too much for me, I'm just going to ignore it, I'm going to go watch Gilmore Girls. Because that's easier to deal with. God has given us revelation that we might dive into revelation and that our eyes might be illuminated to truth, that we might be strengthened against the enemy and his ways. May we be that people, friends. May we be like Daniel who goes, ah, something's troubling me. Tell me more. Tell me more. He says, tell me more. He goes, I wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. I watched this horn. It was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. That's twice. He gave me this explanation. This is what he says. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms. Different. You know, it starts there. It finishes there. It's different. It's not like these guys. It's a different kingdom. It's iron mixed with clay. It's strong and brittle. Where was I? The, the fourth beast is a kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue the three kings. It's the Antichrist. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. 
the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. It's right about now that a lot of people feel that little lump in their throat. And you gulp back, you cross your arms, and you do everything in your power not to stand up screaming in a circle saying, we're all going to die! <laughs> we're not all going to die. That's why we have verse 9, and that's why we have verse 26. That's why throughout two times he's reminded us, hey, just, it's okay. It's okay, but be aware. This is the counterfeit kingdom. This is the counterfeit king. Who is he? What's going on? Yes, he is a future reality that is coming, a literal king that is going to come and rule on the earth. But I want to show you a few other things in Scripture. First and foremost, who empowers this Antichrist? Let's go to Revelation chapter 17. So in Revelation, there's a whole other image, the dragon. Now, the dragon is Satan, the devil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. That's who the dragon is. Then it's talking about the beast, and it says, chapter 17, verse 1, uh, sorry, let's go from verse... No, nah, let's go from verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. That was, and the beast was covered in blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled it with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery. What is it? Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Friends, the Antichrist... When you, when you see a, a person riding a horse and the horse is running, who's in charge? Unless the person's like falling off. But if they're actually riding the horse, who's in charge? Who's controlling it? When you see that the spirit of Babylon is riding the beast, the Antichrist, who's controlling it? Spirit of Babylon. This lawless leader will be under the authority of the spirit of Babylon who is under the authority of the devil. The spirit of Babylon will be at work in that leader, that Antichrist. But I've got to show you some other things. I've got to show you some other things because we can get so caught up in the future and sometimes we dive in and we spend all this time and sometimes we just, like I talked to someone the other day, we're talking about pre-millennialism, amillennialism, post-millennialism. He goes, man, I'm just pan. And I was like, what do you mean? He just goes, it's just going to pan out in the end. (laughs) And so sometimes he goes, doesn't bother me. I don't care. That's happening in the future. I'm good. Let's ignore it. No, we need to go to the Word. What does the Word say? Let's go, let's start in 1 John, hey? 1 John, you enjoying Bible study this morning, friends? Okay, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now as many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let's go to chapter four, verse three in the same book. It says this, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So while there is this Antichrist coming and this future reality, we need to understand that right now where we live, this same spirit of Babylon that empowers that Antichrist is attacking the people of God in the age of the church. We need to therefore listen very carefully. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to understand that we are in a war. We are in a battle, that there is an enemy that coming against, and this spirit is constantly at work. Let's go back to Daniel 7 and start to explore how does he work. What does he do? He'll speak against the Most High. He'll oppress the holy people and change the set times and the laws. What are we seeing in the world today? What does the set times and the laws mean? This is God's ways. Friends, God said that I'm, 
that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that you were made in, the, in his image. We're created in his image, male and female, he created them. The world is saying, the spirit that's driving the world is saying that you are just an amoeba that has evolved out of nothing, therefore you have no image of the most high. Evolution is a lie. Humanity is not getting better. We are getting worse. I did some research last night. Do you know that 35% of the entire internet download is pornography? Did you know that 40 million human beings are still held captive to slavery right now? And that's a conservative estimate. Did you know that 50% of the world's wealth is held by 1% of the population? We are not getting better. We are getting worse as a society because we're believing a lie. Because we're buying into the lie of the spirit of the Antichrist rather than believing the truth that Jesus came to proclaim to us that we are made in the image of God. And as human beings who are made in the image of God, image bearers, loved by him, called by him, chosen by him, when we understand who we are, the Bible says even the angels long to look on these things. They stand in awe. They're like, what have you done, God? You made this we're unique and different and so special to him. And that doesn't make us praise ourselves and think, gee, I'm pretty good. I don't wake up in the morning and think, wow. No, you go, wow, God, you created me in your image and that gives me my identity. My identity is not found in my sexuality. My identity is not found in my status. My identity is not found in anything else that the world's telling me. All that stuff comes from the curse. My identity comes as a child of God. And when the church believes that and lives it out and stops buying into the lies of this world, we will see one opposition. We will. But we will also see a strengthening. And three, we'll see some revival. Because we're gonna see what the early church saw when the same spirit was at work the more that the people were persecuted, Tertullian, the ancient historian, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more people started to just give their lives for Christ, the more people started to believe in him as their savior. And that is why at the end of days, yes, the enemy is gonna come against the people of God, but there is gonna be a holy remnant because these people will see the saints and go, yes. We are seeing this attack. This is the counterfeit kingdom. This is how he is at work against the people of God. Spirit of deception. What does the Bible say? What he says in those days, there'll be people will heap teachers together, tell them what their itching ears want to hear. You can find any preacher anywhere on the internet, anywhere in the world who'll tell you exactly what you want to hear and you can feel super comfortable. One of the lies at the moment that we have is that there is no judgment. We say the judgment's been poured out on Christ. That whole thing that Jesus talked about being the sheep and the goats, that whole thing, which is actually like heaps of the Bible, that God's going to see. We're going to look at it in a second. In the courts of heaven, he's going to open the book and he's going to say yes to you and no to you. That whole thing, people are going, nah, doesn't exist. And it's a lie and we need to be careful because what that does is it makes us think, well, why would I tell anyone about Christ? Where's the urgency Friends, the promise of God is that those who are in Christ are veiled in Christ. We looked at this in the interns again on Thursday and I was getting all excited about it because the truth is I don't stand before God with any righteousness of my own. If I have to stand before God according to my own deeds, I'm in a whole lot of trouble as are you. But I get to stand before God veiled in Christ. I am hid with Christ on high. When he looks at me, he sees the one hiding me, standing in front of me. He sees the righteousness of his son in all that he does. He who knew no sin became sin that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. And so therefore, there's a, a zeal in me to tell people about this Jesus. Because that's how I stand before God and I say, thank you for what you have done. That's the kingdom. A kingdom who pursues his people with humility doesn't 
doesn't puff himself up with pride. The beast is all about me, me, me. Jesus is all about I'll die to self that you might be free. We see the counterfeit kingdom. Let's, let's talk about the kingdom of God. Let's go to verse 9. Oh, this, chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Oh, I love that word, that phrase, that name. Oh, Ancient of Days. Da, da, da. There is no beginning, there is no end. He is the Ancient of Days. Oh, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. He is pure. His hair and his head was white like wool. He is utterly wise. The throne was flaming with fire, refining, purifying judgment of God. And its wheels were all ablaze. It has wheels. It's not stagnant. The kingdom of God is not a stagnant, defensive kingdom. It is a kingdom that's on the advance. It's moving in might and power. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's not a literal 10,000 times 10,000. That's literally the highest number that someone could write in 600 BC. They know it's like us saying infinity. It's like just people everywhere. Right? Just, they're all just standing before him. The, courts, the court was seated and the books were open. This is a prophetic image of the end times that God will put an end to evil. And we don't necessarily like that because we live in our comfortable Western middle-class homes. Talk to the three-year-old who's being abused by a violent so-called father. Does she long for justice and the holiness of God? Talk to the child starving of starvation in Africa. Does he long for justice and the holiness of God? People under the oppression of the cartel in Mexico, do they long for justice and the holiness of God? You bet they do. And maybe it's time the church woke up to it that we might actually start being the hands and feet of God in those places. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. He's like, this dude, he's still speaking smack. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a time. I see that right now. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Friends, this isn't just talking about the spiritual kingdom in the church. No, this is talking about not the initiation, but the culmination. It's talking about the second coming, when Jesus is going to come and all that he has initiated and the, the, the kingdom of God that we see at work in the unseen realm will be seen. It will be seen. He will literally pick up the surfboard of righteousness and just ride it on the clouds. And we're all going to be coming riding in with him, being like, yeah, like just cheering him on as he goes. And he's just like, now's the time. It's done. I've had enough of you, Babylon. It's time to put an end to this. And he will do it with might and authority and we get to be witnesses in that final day. Come on. And the kingdom he will establish is not just a spiritual kingdom. It is a new heaven and a new earth. He will bring down heaven on earth and he will reign in righteousness and justice for all of eternity. We will have real, resurrected, physical Glorified bodies. Again, funny emphasis, sorry. This is what it will be. And our great king will be the only one where there are no tears, there is no pain, and yet there he will be sitting on the right hand of the father with scars in his hands. Try and wrap your brains around that. The one who begs us, bids us, come follow me has subjected himself for all eternity to bear the scars of humanity. And in it, we get his righteousness. We get his purity. 
Verse 26, but the court will sit and the, dra- the, the beast's power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the most high third time. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and, his ru- and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. That's the title of my sermon. <laughs> this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale and I kept the matter to myself. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy person, not because of your righteousness, because of his. That's who you are and therefore you will inherit the kingdom. Bible says you're going to judge angels. Think about that for a second. (laughs) Oh, that should get you going. This is the kingdom of God. Now, who's the son of man? Well, let's let Jesus explain it. John chapter three, verse 13. No one had ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Matthew 9, verse six. The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Who did that? Jesus. Mark 10, 45. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. Who did that? Jesus. Luke 19, 10. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Who did that? Matthew 12, 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Who did that? Matthew 17, 22 to 23, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. Who did that? Come on, someone, who did that? Matthew 26, 64, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who's gonna do that? Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Who's going to do that? Matthew 24, 44, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is Daniel 7, Son of Man. That's why he called himself that. That's why he constantly taught about that because he was saying, see me, I am the Messiah. I am the one who will come at the end of times again to judge the living and the dead. I am the one who will put an end to all of this nonsense. And so with that said, I've got to finish at some point, but we see the kingdom of God. We see the kingdom of Babylon. We see the kingdom of God. We see the counterfeit kingdom. Let me show you some stuff. What do we see with the counterfeit? What do we see? What we see firstly, the antichrist, the counterfeit, where does he come from? He comes from the earth. Where does the king come from? Comes down from heaven. Who's the counterfeit uh, empowered by? The Bible says the whore of Babylon, the spirit of Babylon. Who was Jesus empowered by? Spirit of God. Jesus establishes his church, which he calls his bride. The counterfeit has a prostitute. Do you see this? There's this constant counterfeit. Satan doesn't create anything, he counterfeits everything. He counterfeits everything. Jesus is king. The Antichrist is the the devil's king. It's a counterfeit. Everything is a counterfeit. Jesus is king. So what does it mean for us, band? You can come up. And we'll close. Here's the first thing. Take courage. Take courage. How did Daniel go in to Belshazzar after being forgotten and rejected for nine years, 10 years, 11 years by the time that happened? How did he go in with such confidence? Because he knew the beginning from the end. God had given him the promise. How does Daniel give himself over to the lion's den with such courage and confidence? Because he knew the beginning from the end. How do the people of God take their stand against the devil's schemes? How do we stand up and fight in this generation? Because we know the beginning from the end. God has given us his precious promises that we might walk in the power of the Spirit. I was thinking the other day, uh, I was reminded of a time I went out for dinner with a friend and we were sitting in the city, just having some dinner. And as we were sitting there, there was uh, all these people dressed as zombies just walking past. It was March. And I was like, what the heck is this? All these people like painted. I thought, this is freaky and I'm a bit scared. Are they going to come in here and hurt me? 
I was worried. I was like, this is a problem. My mate was calm as anything, just sitting on the other side of the table. And he goes, oh, that's just the zombie walk. That's just a procession. You know, is this something they do every single year? It was in the paper the other day asking people to go. They're raising money for food bank. He was calm. I was concerned. What I saw as a problem, he saw as a procession. Why? Because he knew what it was. This is the thing. What we see as a problem in our world, God sees it as a procession. He sees the beginning from the end. He's on the lookout of history. He knows. And he tells us so that we would know. And he tells us so that we would take courage. But not just so that we would take courage, that we would be encouraged by all the saints that have gone before and we'd walk in that same power. And thirdly, that we would be ready. And in Matthew 24, 25, be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. You don't know when I'm coming, so be ready. All right, keep watch. Keep your oil trim. Like, be ready, church. Are we ready? Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. It's not just a nice comment to say, come to church. No, this is about we need to be ready. We need to be encouraging each other. We don't know when he's coming back. I can't wait till he does. But in the meantime, be ready and advance. Seek truth, don't be deceived. We talked about that. Seek the truth, seek the truth, seek the truth. God's word is truth. Don't allow the deceiver to lead you astray from what God has said is true. Finally, live by faith in the knowledge that God has fixed the future. Live by faith in the knowledge that God has fixed the future. God is calling us not just to have theological conversations, but to respond. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now is the time to surrender your life to Him. Right now. Right now. When Jesus says, come follow me, He doesn't mean come just like my teaching. He says, follow me. He invites us into a walk that is discipleship. And in that walk, we are hidden with Him on high. Now's the time. Now's the time. Come to Christ. Give Him your life. Walk with Him. If you're wandering, if you're far from Him, come back. He's there to meet you. In fact, He's chasing you. He's actually pursuing you. That's why you're here right now because He's drawn you. Come back. Come under His wing. Come under His wing. Let's pray. Stand to your feet. Father God, I pray right now with all my brothers and sisters in this space. Father, that we would know that ultimately... Jesus wins. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of imagery for a very simple message. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And so, Father, forgive us for the times we stray. Forgive us for when we do one of two things, when we go and ignore you and just think, oh, it's all too much. I'm just going to get caught up in the ways of this world. Or forgive us when we dive so deep that we miss the message. Father, now all of us in this place, we just surrender our lives to you. We bow our knee to you. I pray for those who for right now, for the very first time, are thinking, yeah, Lord, that's me. It's time. I'm coming back or I'm giving my life to you. I pray for them. Stir their hearts. Stir their hearts. Fill them with love right now. May your spirit come and just manifest itself in their lives right now, that they would know the love that is so deep and so wide. They would know the peace that passes all understanding. They would know hope. That they would know that there is a way out of the maze. That where they feel trapped and feel stuck, there is a God in heaven who looks down and says, come, follow me. I will make a way in the wilderness. I will make paths in the desert. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Help us, Lord, as a church to be a church that fix our eyes on you, that is devoted to prayer, that is devoted to service, that humbly chases after you and your word. We 
We love you. We praise you. And together with one voice, all the saints said, amen. If that's you today and you've had a moment where you've said, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus, we would love to meet with you and pray with you and uh, just connect with you. So we're gonna, I'm going to stand over there. We'll have some people standing over there. Uh, and if that's you, please come and see us as we sing. We'd love to pray. Bless your heaps. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.